This is the Aurelius Podcast, episode 49 with Nate Bolt. I'm Zach Naylor, co-founder at Aurelius and your host for the Aurelius Podcast, where we discuss all things UX, research, and product. In this episode, we have Nate Bolt. He's the founder and CEO of Ethneo, the UX research participant and recruiting platform. His background also includes being a founder at Bolt Peters, a UX research agency that eventually got Aqua hired by Facebook, where he then became a design research manager. And if that's not enough, Nate also co-authored the book on remote research. As you would expect, Nate and I talked about remote research a fair bit. Being in the middle of a global pandemic forced a lot of teams to do more or exclusively remote research. We touched on some of the challenges in remote research, but also how things have changed from when he first co-authored the book. Our chat also turned to discussing some differences and overlap with market research. From there, we talked about one of the biggest challenges researchers face, which is backing up your findings and getting business partners or stakeholders to accept and act on your insights. From there, we also touched on a growing topic of the responsibility we all have as researchers on the world we're shaping and the impact we're having. Really great stuff from someone who's been in our field for a long time. The Aurelius Podcast is brought to you by Aurelius, the powerful research repository and insights platform. Aurelius is an all-in-one space for researchers to organize notes, capture insights, analyze data, and share outcomes with your team. We recently announced two of our biggest features yet. Aurelius now offers transcriptions and our automatic report builder. You can add any audio or video recording and have notes created for you automatically. Then, Aurelius automatically creates a report with every key insight and recommendation from your project, which you can then edit, design, and share with anyone right from Aurelius. Check us out at AureliusLab.com. That's A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. Okay, let's get to it. Hey, Nate. Howdy. How's it going? Good. How are you? Yeah, not bad. You know, we were uh, chatting a little bit here. <laughs> Just with everything going on, we're hoping that the world can kind of settle and maybe we can all focus and get back to some semblance of a normal life pretty soon here. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, we'll be releasing this in the future. So for <laughs> so for future, uh, future population, when you hear this, I mean, <laughs> hopefully things have gotten better and not worse by that point, right? So I want to uh, thank you again for jumping on here and taking the time to chat. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. I mean, again, as with a lot of these episodes, I think selfishly, they're people who I tend to want to talk to and have conversations with, right? And they, and that that makes a really good podcast. But for folks who maybe are not familiar with you and the work you've done and sort of your background, I think it'd be great to share a little bit about who you are, what you've done, what you're passionate about. Sure, sure. I had a UX research agency in San Francisco for a while called Bull Peters. And then we were kind of acquired by Facebook. And then I was there for a couple of years. And then I went and have been focusing on Ethneo since then, which is like a participant management platform. And along the way, co-wrote a book on remote research and done a few articles and things like that. And some weird videos. Yeah, very good. You know, remote research is one of those things where... I feel like a lot of people know you from among your among your you know very broad background, but I think that's just that's still one that a lot of folks kind of know you from, and it's very timely right now, right? Because of everything that has been going on and kind of ongoing, even with the pandemic, and a lot of people realizing or forced to have to do remote research. Yeah, totally. It, yeah, it's funny. I mean, it was already kind of becoming much more common, and this definitely accelerated things. You know, I, and I got to ask, other than <laughs> we're in some really uncharted territory, I think, in the world, in our industry, right, just as a result of the global pandemic and stuff. But one of the things I wanted to ask you is, like, how have things changed since you really 
sort of wrote the book on remote research mm. because back then there was a lot there's a lot more restrictions that we sort of don't have today i'm kind yeah. of curious you know what's the biggest thing that you've seen change with remote research between now and then well i mean it's just become so much more accepted at that time it was still kind of like an uphill battle to convince people on the not necessarily the validity but like maybe the feasibility of doing different kinds of things remote and now it's just it's just research you know i mean just drop the remote like i feel like every team even prior to the pandemic had some component of of remote stuff and now whether it's tools or just people getting used to it or need for it it's so much more popular so that, I mean, that's the number one thing it was still kind of friend when we started the book yeah absolutely i mean i remember reading the book and i was like man i just I just wish we could like get the right tools or get people to feel comfortable doing this, <laughs> right. you know? And I think yeah. for, at least for me, and I don't know how true this is for you or anybody else you've spoken with back then, it was like remote mobile research was just the real yeah. challenge. It, it was, yeah. there were ways to do it and you covered that, you know, right. time, but it was just, it seems so difficult where now there's, there's companies that, and tools and stuff that completely specialize in that that seem really, really solid. Totally, which is awesome. I think that's what I was sort of hoping. And th I think seemed likely, but it's, it takes time. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, with all that, you've had a lot of remote research conversations. What's the number one thing people still want to come and ask you about that? Maybe even especially in light of it now where we're all kind of forced to do research remotely. Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's a tie. I think it's a two-way tie. One is around the challenges for a specific study. Here's my X challenge to do this remotely. How can I do that? Whether it's like hardware that you, you know, would maybe need to ship to people, or if it's like a legal challenge, like something around consent or a special population, some kind of tricky situation that's not your average, you know, sort of no-brainer remote. Like, yeah, we'll just put people in a Zoom meeting and call it a day. Like that kind of garden variety remote, I think is so common now that whatever tool you're using, you know, there's, there's a way to do it. That first spot in the most common sort of question is I've got this X scenario. And I find those super interesting and there's, it's never ending. I mean, it's, it's just like study design in general, you know, there's always some unique element to it. So that's, that's one. And then the second is just tools. I still think that tools is the biggest topic because, you know, you kind of have Zoom as like reigning champ because it's just become so dependable and like this whole weird pandemic, you know, poster, poster company. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, even outside of that, I think that space, whether it's mobile stuff or desktop or specialized note-taking or research repositories or the participant recruiting, having that over the last few years kind of scoot over to remote teams and individuals of every scale are interested in tools. So I think that's the second most common thing that I see people talking about. It's like, what's the best tool for X? Or here's my unique challenge for X. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, so we went from a situation where there were none. I mean, I remember some of the things you called out in the first edition of the book. It was like... <laughs> so, so old, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was it was us doing the best we could with what was available. And now, right. like you said, right. you almost have a choice of which of these tools specific to your need would you like to use? And that's just such a huge change right yeah. in, in yeah. terms of what's available totally and a lot of the complexity now is like making sense of the landscape of tools and trying to fit, pick the right one yeah you know actually and we get that a lot just being the nature of who we are right and, and i'm sure you do as well with ethno and sort of that side of the world but we oh. as an industry we like tools a lot i think too. <laughs> right, you know, i think right. that that's i think that that's part of it it's not just it's not just that things have matured i think for some reason we love tools i don't yeah. know if i've ever really figured out why that's the case you know yeah, it's I mean? an interesting question. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, dealing, I think if you're talking about the qual side, there's always 
sort of unknown factor when you're talking about humans and the logistics around scheduling humans. And it's not like an entirely computer-based thing. And anytime that's in the mix, I think that there's complexity and never-ending complexity. And so there maybe tools are a way for us to help ease that or sort of codify that process or whatever. But who knows? I mean, that's just like a baloney guess. <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> it's all valid here. I mean, none of us know the future, right? <laughs> I'm kind of curious, though. I mean, so, so kind of on that note, none of us know the future, but I, I'm curious, do you have a sense for it? Do you have a prediction of like how things will change once the pandemic kind of gets under control and we're able to do more in-person research? Do you think or do you expect to see people still doing a lot more remote research than they were before the pandemic? Or do you think it's going to go back to us sort of preferring to have things in person? It's a great question. I do think that there will be a lasting increase of the pie in remote stuff, especially for UX research. Market research, much bigger beast, more complicated. I don't know about that. For the UX side of the fence, there's so many large organizations and even governments that were not allowed by the lawyers to do remote stuff. And that all changed in an instant. And so I think a lot of those organizations and teams wanted to, you know, maybe not all, but at least yeah. have a component of their research be remote for a bunch of different reasons. And that's not going anywhere. Because I think as long as the lawyers aren't going to like change their mind or security, maybe both security and legal, once it's like approved, I don't see that getting revoked for those types of places that were still even up till the pandemic, like, ah, oh, we'd, we'd love to, but we're not allowed for X, Y, Z reason. And then boom, all of a sudden it allowed. Yeah. That's really, really great point that you brought up. And this was something I was actually talking about, even that sort of a global society level is that when, when the pandemic really hit full swing, I was saying this has shown how a lot of things we all thought we couldn't do and, and all the reasons why it showed us that with the right motivation that we can actually change anything we want pretty easily with the right motivation and the right sort of folks on board. And, and you know, you're right. It's a really great point. If just once you've opened Pandora's box to that, I don't think there's, <laughs> I don't think there's ever closing it right now. We've seen that the world can operate this way. There's pros to it. There's cons. <laughs> We're yeah, all sort of sure. still struggling with that. Right. But I think that we get to make a choice on that now, which is really cool. I think that we yeah. get to keep the pros out of it. Yeah. And I think that it just further probably eroded a bit of the thinking of it as such a different thing. You know, mm -hmm. remote research just became research. So now it's just, I don't think it's something people even explicitly think about as some big difference. It's just like, this is the stuff we do in person. This is the stuff we remote. It's not, there's no big conversation about that part anymore, unless yeah. you're prohibited by like specialized harm or some or one of the many reasons. I think if you're dealing with specialized hardware, for example, you're like kind of dying to be able to do in-person stuff because it's such a huge problem to yeah. you know, ship some beta hardware products to someone that's not supposed to have it yet. And, you know, yeah, uh, that probably is not going to change anytime soon. But yeah, I didn't even think of that. I mean, there's huge challenges there just in terms of confidentiality and everything else. And not yeah. to mention, like if you're giving somebody a, a widget and Ooh. they hold in their hands and right. something goes wrong, right. you can't necessarily help. Right. Everything's wasted, right? Right, right. You can't have the engineers jump in and tweak it or something. Yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, that would be really difficult. It actually makes me yeah. think of something else. I mean, I'm curious, do you have opinions or experience in saying, hey, this is the kind of research that you ought to actually focus on doing remotely because there's there's benefits to doing that way. It's much easier to kind of conduct and execute and get the most out of. 
as opposed to then the other end of the spectrum, do you have research where you're like, I don't know that I recommend you try to do that remotely? Yeah, probably. I mean, it's dependent on so many variables. It, it kind of actually, it sort of highlights the reason why I've never been too interested in like a second edition of the book. Mm-hmm. And that's something I'm so embarrassed about when people still read it today and they're <laughs> like, what's go to meeting? And I'm like, oh, that was like 50 years ago. Sorry. I'm yeah. so sorry. That was like the, the thing in the book. But you need some amount of inputs from the researcher or research team to answer that question well. And there's, it's like, well, what kind of org are you? And like, what's your audience like? And what are your, goal, what are your research goals? Like, what are you testing? And then like, okay, well, then let's like map out what the right fit is for that context. But it's not that many, you know, it's like seven inputs or something. So I think I always, speaking of being tool obsessed, I always thought about doing a better job of just gathering some inputs to be able to say, for X scenario, this is what you should look into. But yeah. that's hard to do well. And, you know, it's a lot different beast than just writing up a book. Fair enough. <laughs> you know, you touched on something in one of your answers to an earlier question. You know, you said, especially on the UX side of the fence, like UX research, whereas maybe market research is different. You know, I kind of want, we've touched on this topic in the podcast in the past. I want to ask as someone, you know, especially with your company, Ethio, who kind of helps serve both of those markets, what's the big difference there to you, UX research versus market research? Yeah, a big topic, of course. I mean, on the surface, I think there's like a simplified way to think about it, which is like behavioral interaction with interfaces on the UX side versus purchase intent or ad attitudinal positioning on the market research side. But that, I mean, I don't necessarily believe that that's the way to divide them up. I think there's a ton of crossover. We had Jason Buell from Answer Lab give a talk about this at one of our like SoCal UX research nights like a year or two ago. I think he teaches UX research in a market research program at USC. So he has a great perspective on, on the kind of difference. So maybe I'll send you the link to his the recording of his talk because he does a great job of getting into some of the nuance. Mm-hmm. But I do think that UX research is sort of like, has a little bit more of like technological innovation attached to it. If you had to pick one of the differences, I think market research has a more traditional history in large companies of like, this is the way we do this. This is the kind of studies we run on our advertising and our marketing and stuff, and even our product positioning and our pricing and things like that. And so I think because of that, it's a much bigger industry. I Mm -hmm. think we're still a much smaller slice of the pie. I think there's a bigger spend on MR than UXR based on nothing, (laughs) my guess. There's so much overlap. I think you have a ton of people now that, you know, even in my brief time at Facebook, I saw lots of, you know, UXRs kind of working with MR and vice versa. And I don't think it's as siphoned off as we might might think. I'm actually really glad you touched on that because that was going to be one, one of the things that I would ask is like, if any overlap exists between the two, because it would seem that you're doing a very similar job, but maybe for a different outcome, right? Yeah. I mean, a lot of the beating, pumping heart of whatever's driving most of the studies we all work on kind of comes down to like, you know, will people buy this thing, which is sort of closer, you know, I think market research is closer to that sort of kernel. But then, you know, if you're a research team or UX research team, you might get that distilled down into more product questions. You know, are they able to complete this flow or this aspect of our product or our interface? But so they're working towards the same goal, improving or mm-hmm. building better things, you know, whether or not it's to make more money, that's 
depends on the context, but every team I've seen or worked with that was only on the UXR side kind of deals with requests that are a little bit blurry. And each of those requests, you know, I research requests like, hey, you know, can we do a study where we just figure out like if we built a green box, would people buy that green box? And I've seen a lot of UX researchers get a little bit prickly and be like, hmm, I can't really tell you if people are going to buy it or not. That's not really my jam. You know, I can, if you have a prototype, I can test that. But I think there's tons of UXRs that do study design that still touches on purchase intent and tons of market research for a fact that deals with interaction of some kind or behavior of some kind, for sure. That's a really interesting take on that. You know, I haven't, I guess I haven't personally noticed that shift or, or hear, as you would say, you know, <laughs> UXers maybe get a little prickly and say, I don't know if that's really the my scope of my job. What's interesting about that is it makes me think of Indy Young and her, her work and discussion of problem-based research. Because like, to me, that's kind of what you're trying to figure out in market research is it's not how can we improve this thing or how can we enhance this thing that we've already decided somebody should buy. But a lot of what I took away from her, you know, in that work is like, well, understand the problem that is to be solved better. I think goes hand in hand with, is this a problem that's worth solving that a business can make money from, right? Because, yeah, you know, yeah. I, th- I think that I think that actually a lot of people should probably embrace that a little bit more. Totally. Yeah. I mean, and I think that you're absolutely right. And that, and I love Indy's work so much. That probably just shows that there is a lot of overlap between the two fields. I mean, who knows? It's so dependent on the, the company and the team. And the, you're talking about agencies versus in-house. And I think all that makes a huge difference. But it's fascinating how much of that creeps into every research study is like, so, you know, at some stakeholder at some point, often, very often is like, I just want to know, you know, is this going to be a success or not? It's like, well, I don't know, we're not crystal ball readers. Yeah, totally. Again, I'm glad that you kind of touched on that because there's a couple comments I've got with regard to that. So the first one is, I almost wonder if because market research is trying to answer a more concrete question for the business as to why that that might be, like you said, they're a larger slice of the pie. There's more investment goes into that. It's because people maybe understand the output a little bit better than UX yeah. are, you know, if that's, yeah. if that's possible. That's and then the other part that's of that fair. too is kind of, you know, where I was going with, it. I'm definitely showing my hand and my bias on this, but I tend to think that we as an industry ought to lean in to trying to hang our hat, not on metrics, but uh, more concrete answers, you know, not to be a crystal ball, but rather to say, well, the research we do can help you get an answer to the question you have, mm-hmm. you know, rather than just, I feel like uh, there's different camps in UX and UX research specifically where we want to be very careful of not being prescriptive to say, if you do this thing, you will get this outcome. Yeah. And then there's other people who go, well, we want to tell you that we're going to do this research to help you make that decision directly. You know, and I kind of think that we ought to lean into that a little bit more because it would show more value in the work that we do. Sure, sure. And it's it's notoriously hard to quantify that value. I think everybody struggles with that. And one of the things that's so interesting is companies keep continue to invest so heavily in UX research and, and market research for that point. A lot of times internally, there's some pressure to say, like, prove your, you know, <laughs> impact Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. But a lot of the magic that comes from understanding the context of people's lives and how they overlap with interfaces is hard to quantify. So it's a never-ending tricky thing. It is. I've never found a great answer to it because I think it just doesn't exist. It's not that there's a lot of really smart people who've worked really hard to try to figure that out. I just think that answer doesn't exist, you know? Yeah. I mean, part of it is like saying, you know, prove the value of seeing live music versus recorded music. You know, you might maybe can't prove that a live show can touch you in a certain way, even if it's the exact same song. But I think anybody that's been to a music, live music performance that touched them in some way or they connected to just knows that it's a bit different 
than listening to it at home. There's nothing wrong with recorded music, mm-hmm. but that that powerful connection that you get, you can build something on that. Just like if you talk to somebody that opens up some insight or a series of people, there's something that happens there that's like powerful, but hard to define. And I think companies struggle with that because it's not easily quantifiable. I really appreciate the way you said that and using the analogy of like live music, because listening to an MP3 as opposed to going to a concert, on paper, it's the same thing. It's the same song, it's the same lyrics. It should be, you know, by all accounts, essentially exactly the same. Right. There is something very profoundly different, right? Of going to a right. concert as opposed to, right. you know, hearing it on your music player of choice. Yeah. And that's, luckily, that's not something that musicians, I don't think, have to uh, uh, quantify. Although I guess I just realized that ticket sales are probably the quantifiable metric that they have. <laughs> because they say, Well, I sold 50,000 tickets. There's the proof. Sure. But, you know, I think there is some kind of interesting correlation there in, this, in, in terms of wall insights because they are a little bit tricky to say, well, we talked to all these people and we did all this rigor around our sampling and our methodology. And what we ultimately got were some moments that inspired us to think differently around the audience that we're trying to research. And that is inherently hard to quantify, but it is powerful. Yeah, no question. No question. All right. So I'm going to take a little bit of a left turn on this because I'm just, it's Apparent to me, you know, you and I, geez, we've been acquaintances for a really long time. You've yeah. been in the my point is you've been in the game for a really long, long time. time. Yeah. And yeah. I'm just kind of curious, like even to this day, what's the one mistake you see UX researchers making that you're just like, we gotta get past this? What's this this thing that all of us, right? Because there's a lot more people coming into the field. I think yeah. that they could probably really benefit from your practiced hands and say, look, this is something I see all the time. Avoid this. It's, you know, uh, get that out of the way right at the beginning of your career. Yeah, man, that's a great question. Let me think about that one for a second. One thing, well, first is just a caveat that, you know, I spend most of my time working on Ethneo as like a, you know, designer or, or PM. So I feel like I'm not doing a ton of research anymore. or not doing it well, that's for sure. So... <laughs> I think if I just think back, though, to when I was doing a lot of research or kind of working on those types of projects, I go, okay, I know what it is. And this is hard. There's no easy answer to this. It's finding the balance between packaging up your research in a way that can have an impact and having good rigor. Because the two are sort of at odds with each other. It's like a yoga pose or something like practice good (laughs) rigor, but also put this together in a way that you can sort of present it and people will find it engaging and, and it will have impact. That's hard. I know that Cliff Klang, who just wrote this awesome book about, you know, user research stories. I'm, I'm totally doing a terrible job remembering it. But he told me once in SF that he thinks researchers are secretly journalists, like kind of in denial, because a huge part of your job as a researcher is to get comfortable with figuring out the lead and the headline. Yeah. And that's oftentimes at direct odds with all the rigor that goes into conducting studies, you know, mixed methods and doing everything right and doing it on a timeline that you can fit into your product development. Those things are kind of top of mind and working with the team and the stakeholders. But at the end of the study, you do have to package it up into a way that resonates to get them in, to kind of pull people in, to be able to get into the rigor and the details, the complexity. Most researchers I know want deeply to walk through the complexity and really get into this is where the nuance is. And I want to really get into this conversation around the nuanced findings, but you can't get there. You can't pull people in to that sort of pithy, you know, headline. And that's hard. That's just hard. And I just see people not focusing as much on that because it feels like, well, 
I want to do the research. I don't want to like waste time packaging it. This I love it. This is really good stuff. We've talked about this in a number of different ways. And, and I completely agree. I think the people who are in UX, and this isn't just researchers, but UX researchers too, tend to love their craft. And so they get really excited about that. And then they want to tell other people about their craft. But what I usually tell folks is, you know, UX research, the output of that is an answer to a question. <laughs> That's what it is. And, yeah. and the people want the answer to the question, not the Rube Goldberg machine behind the scenes of how we got there, <laughs> right? Unless it's a really cool machine, though. Yeah. Exactly. And there's some people who are really into that. And yeah, so, yeah. so really, it's like know your audience. And that's kind of what you're saying. At least what I'm taking away from what you're saying is getting a good understanding to strike that balance of knowing your audience to be able to draw them in so that you have the chance to talk about that craft and the nuance of it, you know, if and where appropriate. But that yeah. is, it's very, very difficult. Because it feels like, and I think they feel like they can be at odds. You could say like, well, I don't, you know, what I care is about is rigorous high quality research. I don't care about headlines. And so I, I think that's what reminds me of this. Do, do these two things that feel opposite and do them well at the same time. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, I guess, do you feel like they, in reality, actually conflict with each no. other? No, no. Yeah, great, great question. I mean, th th I don't think they do. But in terms of your time, you only have so much time. And that's something that I think we've all noticed is the pressure to execute these studies, especially for internal teams, but also for agencies and everybody. It's crazy. We need this done by tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. You're like, ah. <laughs> Yeah, I've personally experienced that. I mean, I guess it makes me wonder, and I get, I'll ask you because you're our guest. Do you think that there's ever a place to say, well, we're going to sacrifice a little on the rigor to get a great headline? I mean, I think the reality is more gray area that probably there are small sacrifices, maybe. I don't know that people would think about it as like, well, I'm going to sacrifice this giant piece of rigor to just get this out the door. But I think in the in the minutia of recruiting and scheduling and even even unautomated, even even self-moderated or whatever the type of, of methodology is, there's probably things along the way like, well, we're not going to do as many test as many components of our interface as we were or whatever it is that, yeah, you end up, I think, scaling back as, as you get into it. You're like, oh, okay, yeah, no time for that. Never mind. Yeah. And even something you said there just, it kind of gave me an idea. I've never thought of it this way before, but there's these two sliding scales, right? If you're dealing or working with a team, whether you're in-house or not, that is going to call you to the carpet on your rigor, then you, you probably ought to be spending more time there than spending more time on like having a good headline. But then on the flip side of that is true, right? Like it's these like two different equalizer buttons, like whereas the one side goes up, the other one kind of has to go down. But if the headline is really important and having an impact and being able to sort of draw people in and sell the outcome of that is, is more important than you have to accept that you're going to have less time for this other thing, unless right. you're working for a place that just has a ton of time, money and resources, which I've personally never experienced. <laughs> so I can't, <laughs> I can't believe that's the case for most of us. Yeah, that's, that's a great way of kind of diving into it more because you do sort of remind me that the number one, you know, we run all sorts of surveys from, from Ethneo customers just to asking about like, what are the biggest hassles you deal with? And one of the things we hear about all the time is defending research from people that don't agree with the findings. Yeah. I think that's a huge thing that researchers, whether you're a freelancer or agency or, or in-house, you know, you have a PM or an engineer or a stakeholder, an exec that's like, I'm not buying it. Where, where did you find these people? What, how many people did you do? What's, what's N? You know, and they immediately go into the rigor as a way of questioning the validity of the findings if the findings don't sit well. And we've I've experienced that a ton of times. I think most people that have worked in the field have. And I get it. I mean, I think that that makes sense if you're like this, if you're a stakeholder and you're like, this smells funny. Mm -hmm. How could you possibly be saying that, you know, everybody just 
you know, ate their whole orange. I don't believe people would eat the entire orange. That's crazy. You know, you sort of want to get into like, how did you arrive at this conclusion? But it sort of then puts pressure on for you to have both the background, you know, maybe the academic background, a PhD or whatever, to be able to defend it, plus the actual rigor in the study itself, plus maybe the structure of your entire team to say, this is how we create the you know, our operations and our projects in general to make sure that we find the right things. I think that's a massive part of people's day-to-day challenges doing research these days is just to be able to defend well. This is yeah, this is such a really interesting topic. And there's a lot of things I kind of want to ask you about and touch on with that. You know, the the first one is I remember we had Peter Merholtz on a long time ago, and I absolutely stole one of the things he said to me, because I thought it put it so beautifully, it resonated with me because I realized I did the same thing. He always said, I take a very lawyer-like approach to design, where the whole process, you're essentially building this case. And then, right? And then your final statement is like, look, I've already laid out all the evidence. Here's the thing that I'm telling you that I think that you should do. I've already given you all these breadcrumbs that will lead you back to why this should be the case, right? I'm curious though, because we were also talking about market research. Do you see folks in market research having to justify this, having to defend those answers when Mm. in, in that kind of work as well? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know enough about the field. I just haven't seen it. I feel like I've heard stories here and there. Well, I'm sure it happens, but I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, it just makes me wonder. The reason I ask is because, as we've sort of discussed, it seems that market research, there's no seams about it. It has been around longer than yeah. UX yeah. research has sort of officially, sure. right? You know, sure. in, in name and sort of recognized practice, which just sort of leads me to believe that it hits some inflection point where people were like, well, this is just part of how we do business. I would argue yeah. that UX research is not broadly accepted in that way yet. Mm, and I'm just trying to figure out why. And I think that part of it, part of why some people probably have to justify their findings and sort of like really sell that more is because it's not just widely accepted as this is, this is a way of doing good business now. It's a great topic. It's so interesting. It's so rich because you're sort of, it's like pulling right at the strings of what does UX research get you? Is it a formula for great products? I think we all know that it's a wonderful and rich field that cannot give you a 100% guarantee of building something phenomenal. And there are so many examples that we all know of products that never did a lick of UX research and are wonderful and vice versa. And it's complicated. And so, you know, because of that, it doesn't have an easy answer to, well, why should we do it? And it sort of touches on the culture of a company and what they value and do they invest heavily in it? And, And it's just, you know, such a fun topic with no real easy answer. But, you know, maybe it's that market research is just closer to the pumping heart of capitalism of like, you know, (laughs) buying stuff. I don't know. Yeah. No, that's really good. Your response made me think of something else too, because, you know, you said uh, one of the pervasive things in our field is maybe you do great research. And then regardless of that, somebody says, I'm not buying it. I'm not picking up what you're putting down. I'm curious. So you, you also touched on company culture and what they value. Have you seen patterns there in terms of, hey, these types of companies, this type of culture tends to question that more as opposed to maybe others who were, they put their faith in UX research. Yeah. And they, Never found a correlation that I've really noticed held true. You know, for a long time, I felt like, and I've heard this from a lot of other researchers too, like sort of design-oriented cultures or companies that aspire to have like a design-first approach tend to value research because so many designers value that, appreciate having that kind of input into their design process. But I think I've seen that be untrue just as much as it's true. You know, there's like teams that are 
completely not design first that have phenomenally rich and successful research teams and vice versa, you know, like, so so Mm. I feel like I've never, I've never over the 20 something years I've been doing this, noticed a correlation that's stuck that says like this kind of company value tends to do really great research and tends to have really great products. Just, it's just fascinating. Yeah, it's absolutely true based on the experience that I have too. Not not quite as long as yourself, but it is interesting even just reflecting on some of my own personal experiences where I've been on teams that had I mean, 20 plus designers and researchers on it. And we still had those those challenges. And yeah. then on the flip side, I've been part of teams that this was brand new and people were just really hungry for it. And they're like, great, let's do more of it. We love what this is what this is helping us inform and how to make our decisions and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting. It kind of reminds me on an individual level, creating buy-in for research is one of those popular challenges too. You know, if you're trying to convince, especially if you're an agency or a freelancer and you're trying to sort of sell research as part of the process, I think it can be a, a huge challenge. And it's like, I always just... Sid Harrell, who I worked with for years and, and just does great work in the civic, just had a new book on the civic tech space. She always says, and this is something we used to say a lot, I think is so true. You have to just do it and, and have people attend. There's no other way to sell people on the power of those, you know, at least qual sessions than just having them watch. And it's, it's such a fascinating thing. Why is that? You know, why is it so hard to sort of create buy-in or qual at least. It's just fascinating. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I've experienced that. I think, and you reminded me of something else that I have tried to practice in my past, is that I feel like getting people to want to trust or accept those findings and outcomes from research happens well before you ever do any research. Mm, For me, it's always been about establishing really good relationships with your business partners, your stakeholders, even executives, honestly. Making it really clear, like, here's what, here's what I'm here to do and how I can actually help you here so I can be valuable to you. This is yeah. what you should expect from me. And then when that time comes, it's not a surprise and it's not like a new thing where all of a sudden, well, you're telling me what to do based on research you did, but like, who are you again? And tell, yeah. tell me about your process, <laughs> right? Like, you know, right. I've already had that conversation. You've already said, here's how we're going to go about this. This is how I want to be able to help you in our organization. Totally. And then maybe the expectations are set where uh, there's less of a question about that. Totally. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And and it's a lot easier to get somebody to attend your your first session if you have built a good relationship first. Yeah, you know, that's another really great point too, because I think that's, it's always a challenge, you know, I think, and Jared has talked a lot, Jared Spool for those um, just unclear, but he's talked about this for a long time too, where it's like, you know, do these kind of like field trips, make it a team sport and get everybody to watch it. But yeah, I mean, you're not going to get somebody to attend a meeting who, do, who they don't even know who you are, <laughs> right? Yeah, it, it doesn't right, matter what right. kind of meeting it is. You throw right. something on their calendar, everybody's busy. Right. Most people right. don't like meetings all that much. And totally. so just another one to add to the pile. And it's like, well, who, who is this? And why should I attend totally. this? Yeah. You're kind of starting, yeah. you know, two steps back as it is. Totally. I'm curious, out of everything that you've seen and still working deeply in the space, you know, even though you may or may not be doing, you know, research every day anymore, where do you see us going from here? Like what, you know, what is UX research going to be in the next year or three years? That's a great question. I see it expanding still, which is, I think, surprising to my 10 year ago self more than anything. Because I I felt sure of many, many years ago, man, this is it. Like it can't possibly get any bigger than it already is. And then it has just exploded since then. So I definitely keep seeing it increasing, which is a funny element to what we were talking about earlier of like, what is the, you know, how are people pressing up against demonstrating value? I mean, it's obviously valuable because 
companies continue to invest in it and teams keep growing and the, the volume quantity of research quantum qual keeps growing too. So there's clearly a thirst. Eric Hall is, uh, talks about this in so many wonderful ways too. You know, there's a thirst for like a human voice mm -hmm. that comes from all corners of, of big companies and small companies. You know, that people do want to feel more connected to the people they're building for. And that's, that's a real human desire. You know, yeah. we want to connect and we want to understand, I think, for the most part. And so providing that voice, it just becomes more and more critical, whether that's through, you know, metrics or through call sessions, you know, that's all painting a sort of picture. And I just think that we'll see more creativity with the way that happens. Obviously, things will get faster. That's just the, the nature of the beast. And, you know, there'll be more tools and more options. But I just see that growing above all, which is still crazy. But I think that's how it's going to go. Yeah, really well said. I've seen some of the patterns of that myself, too. So that's it's an interesting perspective. You know, it also kind of reminds me of, you mentioned, you know, uh, Bolt Peters kind of aqua hired by Facebook way back in the day. And I mean, here's the thing, yeah. everything's going to get faster. They coined the term, move fast and break things, right? <laughs> so, at, this point, at this point- And nothing right, went wrong there. No consequences, all, everything's all good. Exactly, <laughs> exactly my point, right? And yet- and yet the the duality of that is that they invested so heavily and they and they took on a company that specialized in UX research, you know? Yeah. So it's like, what are we talking about with that? You know, and I, and I think it's a useful question to maybe ask of somebody like yourself who where you were there to see some of the some of the inside of that. I think I think it's very well documented at this point. Hey, we shouldn't just move fast and break things. <laughs> and I think sure. part of why sure. we see UX research growing is because because of that realization, but also even just like ethically civically, we all, I think, as an industry and as a society, recognize the need more than ever of being mindful of each other because of our connection. Yeah. So I don't know what my question is there, but I guess I just wanted to float <laughs> that by you. You know, as oh, someone totally. who's no, I think it's it. a Yeah. And I, I share your interest in that kind of tension. And I think there's just, God, probably a lot of us think about this all day now because there's so much going on where we're like, if any of us work in technology, are we accidentally destroying democracy? Like, does does the whole information wants to be free thing? You know, I mean, there's just so much writing and so much work right now going into like, what have we done? What is the true impact of this stuff? I mean, my undergrad major at UC San Diego was called the social impact of digital technology. And, you know, I don't think even that was 1999. So, oh my God, however many years ago that was, I wasn't that rah-rah about it. I mean, you know, I think mm -hmm. well, a lot of us have been skeptical about what the potential downsides of these things can be. But what we're living through right now is brings everything into such scrutiny because we're like, oh, my God, uh oh, like, have we built structures that are dismantling, you know, what we previously thought of as shared information and, you know, democratic ideals? And, you know, I think that actually hopefully will lead to us coming to a better place. And maybe one of the reasons why I've stayed working in UX research for so long is because I find that giving people a voice is of merit, you know, no matter what we're building and finding diverse voices. And that's probably why I still work in participant management stuff, too, is like finding the right participants for any given context to share their voice is still, I think, an inherently good thing. Could be wrong, but that's what I believe. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, this is a it's a big very important topic that's also very timely right now. And I think a lot of folks are looking into it. It's not one that we should skirt talking about. And I, yeah. refreshingly, I've seen our industry be very open and eager to sort of hash through this stuff. I don't think there is any answer to it right now, other than to say, 
honestly, as UX people, as UX researchers, we should have a big voice. And, and frankly, we have a direct and big responsibility to act as a voice of reason and consideration on some of those things. Because, you know, I think what got us there, and maybe this is what you were referring to. So, you know, correct me, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the whole idea of move fast, break things, or just let's get answers to questions on how we can make the thing more desirable and uh, more people willing to buy or use or click or do this or do that without actually thinking of the long-term ramifications of that. That is our responsibility. It's not our fault all in every case, yeah. but it is our responsibility, yeah. right? Yeah, for sure. And there was, a, you know, the UXR comp keynote, Zakai, that you, I'm sure you saw and a lot of us saw was just such a wonderful kind of uh, discussion of that, of like, these are the ethical responsibilities that UX researchers have. This is where we're failing, forcing, you know, white supremacist structures. And just because we're not knowing what the potential future output and consequences could be, doesn't give us an excuse not to, to, to do better. So I completely agree. Yeah, I think I agree. That's a big focus of where we are. Not new responsibility, but maybe one that we've uh, become aware, more aware of. And, uh, and yeah. I think that that's just a good thing. I think it will continue yeah. to improve from there. I'm hopeful yeah. that it will. Yeah, same. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> we covered a lot of ground in our chat, you know, and we're, we're coming up. I need to be respectful of your time. And one of the things I'd like to ask at the end of sort of every episode is I ask our guests, if I forgot everything we talked about and somebody came up to you and said, hey, Nate, what was the podcast all about? How would you, how would you answer that question? How would you summarize it for them? Oh, man, that's a great way to frame it. I think what pops out first in my mind is we talked a lot about details of remote research and traditional UX research and then overlap with market research. But I think the the meat of it was around valuing the work that we do in UX research and communicating that value to other people well so that you can continue to do it. Nice. I like it. Is there anything that you want to share with folks that we didn't get a chance to talk about today? No, I mean, you know, we were talking about this at the beginning, but I think I love that you do these podcasts and always happy to jump on and Zoom with you and love what you guys are doing at Aurelius. And, you know, it's just fun to chat. Right. Nice. I'm very appreciative of you taking the time and doing this. It was an awesome conversation. I know people are going to have a lot to take away from this and very timely stuff from somebody who's been in the field for a long time. So I appreciate it on behalf of everybody else. Thanks again for jumping on. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Pleasure. Awesome. All right, everybody. All right. We'll see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by Aurelius, the research and insights tool that helps you analyze, search, and share all your research in one place. So you can go from data to insights to action faster and easier. Check out Aurelius for yourself with a 30-day trial by going to AureliusLab.com. That's A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot if you would give us a review on iTunes to let others know what you think. You can catch all new episodes of the Aurelius podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts like iTunes, Spotify, and more. Stay up to date when new episodes come out by signing up for email updates on our website.